Welcome, everybody, to the live stream sermon. Uh, I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles, open it to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be looking at some very interesting passages, a new series. Um, We're going to start with the life of David and actually see the promises that God gave David and how they were fulfilled. We want to see how then that would apply to us us, and specifically Jesus's church, Jesus's kingdom. Last night, us men, we were talking about the kingdom of God. You know, many times we can think of a kingdom, uh, we, we picture a castle and we think of knights and such and Jesus's kingdom uh, it is not a place, it is a realm, and it includes his rule and reign. And we're going to see that displayed in the church and the promises God has given his church and how we, as his church, can move forward, especially in these uncertain times. Amen? So I'm going to open in prayer right now, and then we're going to dig right into the message. Father, I ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, and that, Father, that you would so encourage our hearts with the truths of your word. Father, I pray as, as we may be going through some difficult times, we serve a God who is not just sovereign, who not just knows all, but will conquer all. And you have such a good plan for your church. And I pray unfold that for us today. Just give us a renewed vision and a renewed hope. Speak to a spirit of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I know that probably all of you know I am an Eagles fan. I am a diehard Eagles fan. Can I be honest with you, though? I am losing hope. I don't want to, but I am losing hope. Several years ago, they brought on Carson Wentz as a rookie, and he was the face of this franchise. Um, He was going to win Rookie of the Year, but unfortunately, he blew out his knee after, I think it was 12 games, but Nick Foles came in and actually led them into the playoffs to the Super Bowl and ah, winning the Super Bowl against the Pats. Do I hear an amen? Okay, all right. I, I knew there was something spiritual about that win, but anyway. The truth is, though, they're getting rid of Carson Wentz now, and it's a bit discouraging. And here's a reality, and I did not realize this only because I, I, was, I was into sports, but not that much. But there are some people, church, who are so into sports, some cities like Boston, who are so into sports when the New England Pats lose, they, have a, they don't just have a bad day. They have a bad week. It affects the entire city. It really does. I'm kind of curious how it affected them after that Super Bowl. Anyway, the, the, I, I know people, it's, uh, they're just so into sports. It, it's funny how a people in a city can so identify with their sports team that if their sports team wins, they feel like winners. And if their sports team loses, guess what? They feel like losers. But uh, can I just be honest with you? I, d- I did kind of feel like a winner after that Super Bowl game. It was pretty cool. I mean, they hadn't won a Super Bowl ever. But can I just say this? That as much as we may root for a uh, a team, not too many of us, it seems to be, are rooting for the Orlando Magic these days. They're not doing too well. But one day they're going to do super well, and you're going to root for them. But our identity as a people, as a people just in this city, our identity is not found in those types of things. 
Our identity isn't found in winning and losing. Your identity, especially as a follower of Jesus Christ, is not found in your present circumstances. It's not found in your wins or losses. It's not found in your failures or even in your successes. It is found in one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. And God tells us who you are, who we are in Jesus Christ. That is where our identity is. The reason why I'm saying this is because if we're not careful, we can look around the church and we kind of just scratch our heads and say, what is going on? The, The truth is that attendance in the United States in churches is at like an all-time low. COVID paved the way in this. Now, I'm not suggesting that those who view online that there's something that that, that that is sinful, but the truth is that Jesus church is a body, is a fellowship, and that fellowship is, can, cannot reach its potential by just viewing online. It can't reach its potential just by watching a YouTube or watching a sermon or listening to a worship set from another church. As a body, as Jesus' church, we are called to be a people ministering to one another, serving one another, but our identity is found in him. And as we look around the landscape, the, the religious landscape of America right now, it doesn't look really good. It just doesn't. And we're kind of anticipating, waiting for Jesus on his white horse, right? We're hoping that when something's going to change, God is going to bring victory in the church. I I believe that God is going to do that. But as we go through this message, we're going to see something. We're going to see not just the prophecies about David and the amazing things about that, but as it translates now into the New Testament, the amazing promises, over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the, not just the life of David, but what does this mean for us and these precious promises that God has for us, his church. God is not up there scratching his head right now saying, oh my goodness, is this a dilemma? I wonder what I should do. He's not doing that. Now, you might be sitting down here wondering what you're going to do, wondering what you're going to do with your business or as an employee or as a church member. You might be doing that, but God is not. And as, as we look through this, my prayer today is that God just encourages your heart. You may not learn something so super cool this morning that you didn't know before, but here's what I pray. God would encourage your heart. Some of us, we feel like we're kind of groping around in the darkness. What is going on? And yet God, for him, he sees everything. If you will, he's got the, he's got the night binoculars, right? The night glasses. He can see it all. He can see through the darkness, church. He knows exactly what lies ahead. And you know what? He's excited about it. Because he knows and understands and is bringing history to a climax, to a fulfillment in his son, Jesus Christ. And we are a part of that. And I don't know if that climax is next year or next decade or next century, but I want to tell you this. God is in this process of moving his people forward, and it is good. It is good. It may not feel that way right now, but church, I want to tell you it is good. Amen? So are you there with me? First Samuel. 
Church, before we, we look into that, I, I did want to bring up a passage, and it's in Ephesians 2. And it has to do with our identity in Christ. And I, I want to give you this picture kind of as a prelude to where we're going today. In Ephesians 2, it says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, in which we used to live when we walked in the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. But because God loved us, it says God raised us up with Christ in the heavenly realms, in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You have been raised up. You have not just been raised up and brought to life because we were dead, brought to life, but you are now seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, physically you are not. Spiritually, though, you are because that is your inheritance. That is who you are then in Christ. Can I just ask you, where is Jesus seated in those heavenly realms? He is seated, chapter 1 tells us, at the right hand of the Father. Who sits at the right hand of any king? It is the most powerful person in the land that he uses to administrate his kingdom. That's who it is. That's what Jesus is doing. That's where you sit, church, in Christ. That is who you are. Not only does Jesus rule and reign, he now has called us in this amazing inheritance to do the very same thing. Romans 5 says that we reign in life. Now, regardless of what we're looking around us today, we need to be able to see truth because it doesn't depend how my identity and, and who I think I am. And trust me, every single one of you have an opinion about yourself. Who you think you are is not determined by anything around you. It is determined by what God says. We're going to look at a passage and we're going to hear what God has to say about a young man by the name of David. Now, as you look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you could turn there. I said 10, didn't I? 1 Samuel 13. 1 Samuel 13, God tests Saul's heart. And by testing his heart, he has this opportunity, not just for God to look into his heart, but for Saul to look into his heart, for Saul himself to peer inside of his heart and ask, what is it that's inside of me? He saw something that was not very good. So much could be said about this, but he had disobeyed the prophet Samuel. He had disobeyed the very heart of God, and this was not the first time. Consequently, God has something to say to Saul through the prophet Samuel. Let's read that. And it says there in verse 12, he says, Samuel speaking to Saul, and he says, you acted foolishly, Saul. Excuse me, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, meaning your sons 
and their sons and their sons and their sons and their sons and their sons would reign on this throne. But now that's not going to happen. This, this is a serious and a significant word because Saul was the people's choice. Had the people made a bad choice? Well, he goes on and he says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Who is this person that he's referring to? I think all of us know the backstory enough to realize he's referring to who? Give me a name. David. That's right, David. David is a young man. I don't know exactly how old he is here, but I do know that by the time he kills Goliath, he's about 20 years old. Only because in Israel, you could not serve in the army until you were 20. And David not only served in the army, but after he killed Goliath, he was elevated to an, a commander over a thousand. And he led the campaigns of Judah or Israel against the Philistines and won every battle. So here is this young man. Saul has no idea who this is. And then God pronounces that this man is a man after my own heart, and that's the one that I'm going to call to be my new leader. Wow. But at this time, who was David? What was his occupation, church? He was a shepherd. Now, if you fast forward to chapter 16, do that with me. Samuel is asked by God to actually go and anoint the new king. Now, it is a little bit of a prophetic anointing, but it is very real. David would not become king right now. He would one day, but the Spirit of God now descends upon him. The Spirit of God actually anoints David in this act. So he comes to Jesse's household. Jesse has eight children, eight sons, rather. There were some daughters, eight sons. It's a feast. He then says, I am here to anoint the new king. And so Jesse has his firstborn son stand before him. And Samuel looks at him and says, surely this is the guy. He was just like this hulking dude, okay? Chiseled chin, I'm sure. And it was like, man, yes, surely this is the Lord's anointing. And, and what did God say to him? No, mm-mm. No, because man looks on the outward. Man likes to see the strong and the powerful and the smart. And you know what? God says, I look at the heart. And it's not this guy. And one after another, Jesse parades his sons before Samuel. And one after the other, God says, no, 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 no. All of his seven sons have been paraded before Samuel, and they're all turned down. Samuel is thinking, okay, God brought me here. What? I'm supposed to anoint one of his sons. And so he asked me, maybe do you have another son? And it's like, oh, yeah, oh, that guy? Son number eight? Yeah, he's like out in the fields taking care of the sheep. He hasn't even showered yet. 
bring him on in. And when he comes in, God says, this is the man. This is the man after my own heart. And what does Samuel do at that point? Verse, six, verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Whew. You know what? If I were Abinadab, the oldest, I'd be looking on thinking, what on earth? Samuel's gone senile. Yep. Can't see straight. Doesn't know what he's doing. Too old. Yeah, he... They, we need a new prophet in the land, a new judge. We need, not Samuel. He missed it. He missed God today. Can you only imagine how his brothers are feeling at this point? The youngest. The runt of the litter. And it says that he, in the presence of his brothers, he anointed him. And it says, listen to this. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. So now he is anointed. Now, even though he doesn't become king, actually doesn't become king for, I would, have, I would venture, at least 10 years. At least 10 years. From the time that Goliath is killed, I'm going to imagine David is somewhere around 20. But he doesn't become king until he is 30. Some of you young people, Waiting for just a few months for anything is like the hardest thing you've ever done. Waiting for something a few years, unbelievable. Some of us older people, we've been waiting a, some decades for some things. Still praying, I hope, but we've been waiting a long time. And we're still hoping, and we're still praying, and we're still believing. Amen? Older people, come on. Amen? Amen. And so here he is. He's anointed, and yet Samuel leaves. It says it right there. Samuel then went to Ramah. Can you imagine David in the question? Wait, 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 wait. You have anointed me. Now what? Okay. I, I, I'm not getting this. Shortly after this, I'm not going to read it, but in the last half of this chapter, he kind of comes with a reputation. People know a little bit about him. They know that he plays the harp. He's a musician. But how does that qualify him to be a king? How is that going to pave the way for him to become king? And yet, because of that, he now serves before King Saul. And he is allowed to be an armor bearer for King Saul. Now, <laughs> I'm going to suggest that he's at least 20 because even though only his three oldest brothers are in the army, that doesn't mean that his three oldest brothers were the only ones that, have, that were of military age because a dad still needed to have some of his sons running the business. So three of them, the three oldest, served Saul. <laughs> You know the story, he goes, he, he, he takes Goliath's life, and unfortunately, as he is elevated in, in rank, as he becomes very popular amongst the people as such a young man, 
This stirs up jealousy in Saul. Now, I'm not going to get into the opposition that David had to go through until next week. But I need you to see this. Anointed as a king, and then over the next 10 plus years, God does something. We're not going to know everything today by any means. But in this process, he does flee for his life. He goes around Judah, and with four, somewhere between four and 600 other military men, he helps people. That's right, he helps people. And in a particular situation, he helps a man by the name of Nabal. But Nabal is not real excited about what David did in protecting his sheep. You know, what a big, what's, a, what's a big deal? David is asking for some provisions. Nabal turns him down. David is incensed, and he takes his men. He is about to go to Nabal's estate. And Nabal is a very wealthy man, and he's going to take his life. Abigail, Nabal's wife, comes to David. And I want, to, I want you to hear what she says. She makes an appeal to David. This is what she says in chapter 25, verse 29. She says to him, even though someone is pursuing you, referring to Saul, even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my master, will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. In other words, he's going to protect you. He's going to keep you safe. We have to ask, why does she feel so confident about this? In just a minute, she's going to answer that question. Listen, but the lives of your enemies, he, referring to God, will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. When the Lord has done for my master every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him as leader over Israel, my master will not have his conscience on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. I'm not going to go any further than that. What promise has been given to David that even Abigail, who lives very far south in Judah, by the way, knows about. It's as if there has been a prophetic word that has been given over David that she knows something about. The promise that the Lord has concerning you. Now, I want us to, you don't have to turn there, but in chapter 23, not only does Abigail know about this, but Saul and Jonathan know about this as well. Jonathan tells David, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be your servant. Even my father Saul knows this. How does Saul know this? Did Saul somehow find out that Samuel went to David and his family and anointed him with oil? That's possible. But what promise was given to him? Now, we learn some of these prophetic words that were actually given concerning David a little bit later. I want to show those to you. If you were to turn 2 Samuel chapter 3, I'm not going to get into the details other than this. Abner, <clears throat> Saul has died. 
Abner is the new commander. Well, he was the commander of the army. He's, he remains that commander of the army of Israel, but David is now king of Judah. And the kingdom has been kind of wedged apart due to Saul's death. And there is something that is driving a wedge here in which people are wanting to follow David, but others feel this sense of loyalty to Saul, even though, truly, church, they did not like King Saul. They're not real excited about the new king, Ishbosheth, his, his last son. Others were killed in the battle. Abner gets fed up with him. And he says this, and it, it's almost as if, I'm going I'm to put something in your face. And this is what Abner says to, to, to Ishbosheth, the king of Israel. For the Lord, look at chapter 3, verse 18. For the Lord promised David, by my servant David, I will rescue my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and, by the hand, and from the hand of all their enemies. Well, where's David? David, for the last 10 years just about, has been fleeing for his life from Ishbosheth's father. And his father is now dead, and David most certainly is not serving in the armies of Israel anymore. So how is David, how is this prophetic word going to come to pass? He's going to destroy the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and all of the enemies. Ishbosheth, he knows about this. This isn't the first time he's heard it. There is a prophetic word that's been given over David, and it has been in the works, so to speak, for over 10 years. He is now king of Judah. Now, Ishbosheth dies. David is about 37. He's been reigning in Judah, specifically in the city of Hebron, for seven and a half years. Ishbosheth dies. David mourns his loss, by the way. He was the son of Saul. And now the elders of Israel in the northern kingdom come down to Hebron where David is king. And they have something to say to him. Chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel now come to David. And in verse 2, <clears throat> in verse 2, it says, In the past, while Saul was king over us, this is the elders of Israel speaking, that while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. This was over 15 years ago. Now listen to this. And the Lord said to you, to David, you will be shepherd of my people Israel and you will become their ruler. Now this is the first time that we hear of this prophetic word. You will shepherd my people Israel. Can you think of anyone else in Israel's history that at one time was a shepherd but then became a leader of Israel? Can you think of anyone else? How about the very first main leader of this nation, Moses? Moses, for 40 years in the Midianite Desert, served as a shepherd, and now for the next 40 years, he was going to have to shepherd the people of Israel in all of their stubbornness. David 
is now taken from being a shepherd. A shepherd is not a real honorable trade, people. It's not like he learned tremendous military strategies and, uh, and, and just thought like a warrior and, and he'd been raised up in some school that trained him to be a general. He hadn't. But God was in this process of equipping him and doing something so that when God looked at him, he said, this is a man after my own heart. You know what? I think in our day, I mean, as important as skill and talent and intelligence is, I think too often those get the headlines. Those get the focus. That's what generally gets talked about when you start talking about leadership, when you start talking about politics, when you start talking about you know, companies or, or anyone who is great. We look at their gifting. And I have to step back, and I'm not going to discount gifting. God is the one who, who does that in people. God is the one who gives people their own intelligence, okay? But God steps back and starts shaking his head, and he says, no, I don't see it that way. I don't look on the outward like man does. I want to look at the heart. And that is what God values. God is doing something in the heart of his church today. If we could just stop thinking about talent and, and being raised up to do something great and just allow God to do something great in you, let God take care of the rest. I'm not opposed to, to dreaming. It, in all honesty, though, sometimes our dreams are a little bit too much about me, us, right? And And... But there is a prophetic word that is given over David. And I can only imagine, and this is some speculation, but I can only imagine that it was this word right here in chapter 5, verse 2, was probably a word that was given to him by Samuel on that day that he was anointed. We don't learn about that in 1 Samuel 16. But it says this, I... I'm going, how does he put it? I will, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. God took a shepherd, very, very possibly spoke to him while he was a shepherd. And can you imagine if, if David was a shepherd receiving this word? I am a, literally a stinking shepherd and I'm supposed to become the ruler of this nation? Yeah, right. But this was God's prophetic word given over his life. I want you to see the inevitability of this promise of God. We're going to see a little bit more of, of this angst involved in these 10 years. Maybe even the questions that David may have had that we share. But God spoke something over him, and God was the one who brought it to pass. God was the one who was marching forward every step of the way, David's progression until finally he was king, not just over Judah, but over all of Israel. So what does this have to do with you and me today? I don't feel like King David. 
When I look at King David's life, a man after God's own heart, there's so many things about him that I just so admire. And I do admire his skill and ability. It's not like they weren't there. But it's not like he had a lot of opportunity to exercise those skills as a shepherd But God was the one who brought them out. God was the one who cultivated them. But most importantly, God was the one who was working in David's heart. That was the most important thing. So important it was that every subsequent king after David was measured not according to his skill, but according to his heart. Let me say that again. Every subsequent king after David was not measured according to all the great things that David did, all of the military triumphs and battles that he won. Those subsequent kings were measured on the plumb line of David's character and the passion that he had for God and the desire that he had to follow him and do God's will no matter what. And we're going to see there were some times in David's life where he was so pressed, even by his men, to do the wrong thing, but he chose not to. So for you and me, I I want us to see something. We're going to fast forward now to the New Testament. The purpose today is I want us to see that God has spoken over us as his people, every single one of you who believe, who maybe right now you're looking around and you're thinking, "Ah, the the church doesn't look very triumphant to me right now. And I, I tell you what, that in America, as far as what we can see, it is probably the most triumphant than anywhere else in the world. That is sad, church. Much of the church you can't see. And in China, for example, China, there are so many people coming to Christ. But when you when you walk the streets, there's very few visible churches. Those visible churches, for the most part, those are the ones that are under the puppet strings of the the, the leadership in China. And most churches do not want to be a puppet on those strings. And so they go underground. By the way, did you know that Canada has its first underground church now? Yes, they do. So they arrested the, the pastor, what was it, back in March, Uh, They held him for 30 days or so, and now he's been released. But they have a triple fence around his church, as I understand, and will not allow anyone into that church because, from my understanding, he was allowed to have only 15% of his people attend his church. And he said, no, you're not going to do that. You are not going to handcuff Jesus' church. And so he disobeyed those orders. I commend him for that, by the way. He got arrested And so the question is, where's his church meeting? Well, guess what? It's meeting underground. I hope the government never finds out, but amen. In secret. Maybe, just like in Cappadocia, they actually did have their church underground. Uh, You can read about that in the churches that were literally hundreds of feet underground. But we now have an underground church in Canada. Wow. I thought that maybe California was going to create the first U.S. underground church, but I I guess they took a step back. And the the reality, though, is in many 
nations around the world today, there is so much persecution. There is so much darkness. Christians would be tempted to step back and ask, where, where, where is God in this? See, for us Christians in America, or for us in America, when we think about becoming a Christian, <laughs> we start thinking, well, I wonder what God's going to do for me now. I wonder what kind of success God's going to give me. I wonder what kind of blessings. I wonder how much money he's going to give me. I wonder how nice my car is going to, and my house is going to be. And some of this is promoted by online or TV evangelists who promise you the world if you'll just make this decision to follow Jesus and, of course, send me a big donation. But the truth is, when people in other nations become Christians, they're not tantalized by this. They don't receive that kind of a gospel. Just follow me and look how much I will bless you. Instead, that blessing comes in the form of persecution. They're not promised the world like they are in America. I think too, maybe too many of us have been able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that's the Christ, that, that is the Americanized gospel that is regularly preached in America. It, it's not preached in a lot of these other countries, by the way. And when you come to Christ, you realize, I could die next week. I'm not being overly dramatic right now. In many countries, where you're not just not allowed to evangelize, it's against the law to express your faith in any measurable way. And they will imprison you and... Many times you will be executed. Of course, generally, so that the public doesn't know about this, but in America, we look around and church, we are so blessed. But maybe, maybe that blessing is a little bit of a deception. Maybe what's really going on is the devil is rubbing his hands. He is so excited about what he is doing to undermine the church. I'm going to give you an example. But I have to wonder, what is that church? Is he really undermining the church? Or is what Satan is doing simply pulling the mask off of so many people? and allowing them to realize this man of God is not a follow, true follower of Jesus at all. This person, maybe even myself, no. Apparently, a senator in Georgia, Senator War, uh, Raphael Warnock, made a tweet the other day. He got so much flack from it that he pulled it off his website or wherever tweets are made, because I don't tweet, so... I don't know. Twitter. Yeah, off his Twitter account. All right. He deleted it. Did I get that right? All right. But this is what it said before he took it off. And this has been verified. It's not been made up. This is what he said. The meaning of Easter is, this is Reverend Raphael Warnock, who's now a new senator in Georgia. The meaning of Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you are a Christian or not, 
through a commitment to helping others, we are able to save ourselves. Mm. Easter is more transcendent than the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Easter is about. What he's trying to say is, as a pastor, as a false teacher, is that, and I'm confident in saying that because I know his lineage and I know where he got his education and his master's degree, and and I think he even has two masters and a, a PhD, that does not impress me whatsoever when I read something like this. Because here is a man who claims to be a Christian, embraces liberation theology, and reduces the gospel not to a God who rose from the dead for the salvation of man and triumph over the grave for all who believe in Jesus, but rather here is a man who says, hey, everybody, the way you are able to save yourselves is by being really nice to one another. I I like the idea of being nice. I like the idea of being kind and loving. But church, Jesus had to rise from the dead. That is the gospel, the good news. The good news isn't that if I reject Jesus, I can still make it, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Because it all depends on me. This is where many in the church of Jesus Christ, I don't want to say church, in the church, the, the, when you see church buildings, this, this is not uncommonly preached in those buildings. And in America, we are throwing the gospel out the window. And this is just simply an example of that. Can I show, a pass, show you a passage, and I'm going to close with this? I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm not going to go into the background of, of this, the context of it. You can do that yourself, only because I'm going to start with a verse in which Paul goes into this five or so chapter digression of a 13-chapter letter, okay? So almost half of his letter is a digression. But he's, he's, he's talking about all the, the problems and j- just stuff that's been going on in the church. Back in 1 Corinthians 5, there was an immoral brother. He was apparently sleeping with his stepmom, and they were excited. Oh, this sin is covered by God's grace. What are you talking about? Rebuke this man, and if he chooses not to repent, and I pray that he does, but if he doesn't, he needs to be re- ask him to leave the church because he is dishonoring the name of Jesus Christ. He is remaining in his sin and refusing to repent. That's called church discipline. So much more that needs to be addressed in that. I've kind of just dangled that out there if you're not aware of this concept of church discipline, okay? But this is what Paul does. And in chapter two, he says, now that the guys repented, welcome him back. And, and he's just, it's like First Corinthians all over. It's one problem after another that he's having to go through, the disappointment that they had that apparently he lied and didn't keep his word. He's, oh, you said you were gonna visit and you didn't? I don't get this. And, and so... He, he, he addresses those problems, and then he just stops. 
And, he, and, and it's almost as if he said, in view of all of these problems, hang on, back up the truck, I want to say something. But it takes him five chapters to say it. This is what he says. Chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always, church, can you say that, with, that word with me? Always. Does that mean like part of the time or does that mean always, church? Always, thank you. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the grace of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ like a sacrifice was a pleasing aroma in a very symbolic fashion to God. Well, so much that could be said just on that, but we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And I'm not going to go any further. I want us to focus on this idea. Man, in view of all of these problems, Corinthians, ah, but, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ. That is the inevitable triumph of the church. You know, Jesus had just cast out a mute spirit from a man so that he could speak. People thought that he was, uh, Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub, and by that power was able to cast out a demon, and Jesus kind of just said, <laughs> that's what he said. And, and he said, are you serious? No, but, trying to be super. Think about the logic of this, okay? Jesus is trying to tell them, if, if, if I had the power of the devil and I'm casting out demons, don't you see the problem there that, that Satan's kingdom is going to be divided? That if a city or a household is divided against itself, it will inevitably fall. And then he says this. He says, if I am casting out demons by the power of God, know this, the kingdom of God is here. This that you see, this man who's been healed, is because of the kingdom of God. And then he says, then he goes on and he, he says this. He says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house now, he just talked about a house divided against himself, and that house represents Satan's kingdom. So I want you to imagine this strong man that he's going to be talking about here. That house is Satan and his kingdom. Strong man is Satan. His house is his kingdom, okay? How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up? King James says, binds. Unless he ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house, his kingdom. What Jesus is saying here in this concept of this triumphal procession, see, in a triumphal procession, that is when a king riding his white steed wins a victory and gets all of the captives, rides them or, or takes them in a train 
into his city and parades them around the city. These are the conquered ones. That's this triumphal procession. And But in, in this triumphal procession, we were once those captives who are now followers of this one dry, riding on the white steed, this king. Okay, And he is now taking us, not to humiliate us, but to parade us as now the cap, his own personal captives and servants in his kingdom. And this is the triumphal procession that we are now a part of. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is because Jesus said, I am here with all power and authority. And I am casting out these demons because I am the king of this new kingdom. It is here. Somehow, Satan, has, the strong man of his house, of his kingdom, has been bound. And now all of the objects in his house, which would be representative of the slaves or the captives of his kingdom, and that used to be me, and that used to be you, before you came to Christ, you served the devil, whether you recognize it or not. You were ensnared by his will, deceived by his lies, and you followed him, just like I did. I was a part of Satan's dominion. But he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom is redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.13. Consequently, when we're looking at this, Jesus is in essence, this is what he's saying. If, if he were to step back and see his death and resurrection, he would say, my death and my resurrection has, was so powerful, it destroyed the work of the devil. He is bound, and by being bound up by my power and authority demonstrated in the cross and resurrection, I am now robbing his house. My kingdom is pillaging his empire, and we are emptying hell itself and all of its followers, you and me, and I am bringing them in this amazing triumphal procession always, always in this triumphal procession. We are a part of this process, church. Regardless of the darkness that we see around us, regardless of the false gospels that are being preached, and there's, a, there's hundreds of these false gospels, and they're all different from one another. But the one thing they have in common is they deny the resurrection and the power of the cross. And they do not point us to Jesus, but they eventually point us to man, even ourselves. Yeah, save yourself. Jesus, in this time of darkness, is leading you in this procession, in this process of living life, whether you see it or not, in triumph. Have you ever walked through darkness, dark room, dark house, and you weren't exactly sure where you were. Maybe it was a new house, and you were looking for the refrigerator, 
and you turn a light on, and boom, there it is, right there in front of you. You found it. But because I know my house so well, I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly where the refrigerator is. Even in pitch darkness, I can, I can walk through my bedroom. I can walk down the stairs. It's not that I have the, the steps memorized. It's like, it's like a feel. Do you know what I mean? I bet you if you know your bedroom or your house or another room so well, you don't even need the light turned on, and you can walk right through it. And you might bump a little bit here and there, but you're not going to fall flat on your face, though I have done that still. But the truth is, you, when you know a place so well, even though it is dark, you still know where you're going. I can still find my way to the refrigerator and grab a snack at night. Okay? I don't even need to turn the, flash, to turn the light on. I can get there. Can I just tell you this? As you walk with Jesus, you do not need to walk by sight. Now, this is hard. You do not need to see triumph after triumph. You don't need to see just amazing things. Though I love when God heals, and I love when God does amazing things. Let me step back into the metaphor at the beginning of the sermon. Sometimes my team loses, though. Sometimes it looks like things just aren't going too well. But I have a promise. Just like God promised to David, I have a promise. Here, today, I am being led, and you are being led in this always, forever, triumphal procession. I don't care how dark it is. I choose not to walk by sight, but by faith. The, the, the sense, I know where I am. I cannot see it, but I know where I am, and I know where I am in God's will, and I know that by God's promise, I am being led in triumphal procession, and so are you. And so when we step back in this day, not just in America, but in any, any nation, any culture, persecuted or not, I know that God's, Jesus' church is being led forth into this inevitable triumph because that is his promise. That's his promise, church. As much as I want to see God do amazing things, I'm going to need to make a decision. And when I don't see those amazing things, I need to guard my heart because I'm not walking by sight anymore. I used to. I choose to walk by faith. I choose to trust this, this forever procession of triumph, this promise of God. He's doing great things, church, whether I see it or not. As we go through this series, we're going to see a lot of things. Times in which David doubts himself and maybe even God himself, and yet God still keeps his promises. Can you stand with me? Father, I just ask you right now, wherever we might be disillusioned or even discouraged today, just breathe new hope into us. Give us a vision of this triumphant church that Jesus is the head of and constantly leading us forward. God, we are in such a good place because that place is in Christ. So Father, I pray, just through these words of encouragement, 
build us up. Whether you turn the light on or not, may we listen to that voice of truth and may that be what leads us. May that truth, may those promises, those prophecies, may they be those things that encourage our heart today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.